everyone, I'm Nicole Kozalek, and you are listening to I Believe, a podcast focused towards inspiring FFA members to be their best, do their best, and make a difference in the world around them. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the I Believe podcast. Today, I am honored to have Kit Welchlin with me. For those of you that do not know, Mr. Welchlin served as the Minnesota State FFA Treasurer in 1980 to 1981. He is now the president of Welchlin Communication Strategies and Seminars on Stress. In both positions, he works as the professional motivational speaker and seminar leader, traveling all over the country to different events. Mr. Welchlin was inducted in the Minnesota Speakers Hall of Fame in May of 2014 and was awarded the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from the Metropolitan State University. With all this being said, I am so excited for everyone to hear the conversation I had with Mr. Welchlin. Welcome to the I Believe podcast, Mr. Welchlin. We are so privileged privileged to have you join us and share your insight. Could you start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, grew up a bit, and a little bit about your FFA experience? Sure. Well, thanks, Nicole. It's nice to be on your podcast. I grew up on a hog and dairy farm in southern Minnesota between St. James and Medelia. We had about 100 Yorkshire sows and 67 Holstein milk cows and So I was surrounded with hogs and pigs and chickens and ducks and a few steers. And I was active in 4-H. That's where I first got involved in agricultural youth programs. And then I had older brothers. I was the youngest of four sons and my oldest brother was seven years older than me. So I started attending 4-H meetings when I was about three years old uh, because my parents were adult leaders. And then uh, my brothers were involved in FFA My oldest brother, Cabot, was a regional president and ended up being a state sentinel. My next older brother, Kelly, was a regional president. And then my brother, Corey, uh, was a regional president and the vice president for the State 4-H Association or State 4-H organization. And so I just kind of followed along. So I was involved in 4-H and was the club president and then the county association president. And then I ended up being a state ambassador for the 4-H. And then I was also at that time the in FFA, the chapter president. And uh, Jack Lavalla stopped by to speak at our FFA banquet when I was a senior in high school. And I was emceeing our banquet that night. And he suggested or recommended that I run for state office. I wasn't anticipating doing that. So I did, I ended up being the state treasurer for the FFA while I was a freshman in college. So that was kind of my journey. The proficiency awards I was involved in were uh, landscaping and also then, you know, the agricultural stuff with corn and, you know, hogs and beef and, and things like that. So it was a wonderful experience and I will actually be continuing working with the FFA this weekend. So tomorrow night, And all day Saturday, I offer a leadership development series for alumni chapters that support local FFA programs. 
Awesome. Thank you. I didn't realize that you were super involved in 4-H as well and showed or had pigs and steers on your farm. So did you show pigs? No. <laughs> oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I enjoyed doing. <laughs> you know, I've, I always found that uh, it was more fun to do the projects that were more related to safety and health and uh, electric and uh, so in 4-H I was uh, and FFA I did not show livestock I did show calves for both uh, FFA and 4-H uh, Holstein calves I suppose yearlings I suppose is what they were called at the time but I never showed hogs I always found that <laughs> that seemed like hogs had their own mindset it was a little bit tricky to to keep uh, them moving the direction that you would like but uh, a gentle Holstein calf on a halter, that was my speed. <laughs> gotcha. I had to ask because I actually show pigs as well. well. And then I showed some dairy um, heifers from my cousin's farm. So I just have like that little connection. So I had to ask because I'm more of a pig girl instead of the um, dairy girl. So, <laughs> Well, I do provide speeches and seminars to the National Pork Congress and the Minnesota Pork Producers and a number of the large hog farms around the country. So I, I still am engaged in agriculture as a professional speaker, but I, I uh, never really was very successful in showing hogs and, and chose not to do it at all. <laughs> gotcha. So moving on, what did you wish you would have done in FFA that you didn't do? You know, I think I would have probably uh, built and maintained a network. Uh, it seemed like I was always in a hurry when I was younger and I was going from one, you know, green hand camp to a leadership camp to, you know, a state uh, chapter or state officer meeting it always seemed like I was in kind of a hurry and I I guess I always thought I would remember more of it than I did so I think I would have kept track of fellow students fellow FFA members any of the agriculture agribusinesses that supported the FFA ag teachers I I really regret that I didn't keep a good list I didn't maintain a list at all and a lot of those folks that I really enjoyed spending time with, you know, they're just uh, lost the opportunity to reconnect with them. So I, I would have probably, if I could go back in time, I would have probably kept better track of all the people that I really enjoyed spending time with. Awesome. I love that. I think that's even great advice for just me as I'm starting college and um, kind of figuring out like what I want to do in the future and still having those connections with um like my ag advisor and other um, members that I've worked with throughout the years. Yeah, years um, later, I read a book called The World's Greatest Salesperson, and it said everybody knows about 250 people personally. And that's not, you know, your Facebook and LinkedIn and all that social media stuff. The people, if you call, they'd answer the phone. If you sent them a note, they'd respond to it. And, uh, you know, so when we lose that network of all those connections, I think that was a terrible loss. I wish I would have been thinking more clearly, you know, about how important those relationships were currently at that time, but also in the future. Yes, I love that. So how did FFA set you up for success in your career? Well, I think, you know, whether it was reciting, you know, the, the you know, I believe in the future of farmers, you know, and the, and the, future farming, you know, I think from when a person competed, you know, in the, to uh, 
in, as a green hand and then the public speaking opportunities and to be a, an officer within the FFA chapter, it just seemed to give me some confidence that you may not have quite everything in order or you might not have everything under control, but you still need to take action. You It kind of trained me to be action oriented. Whether you're ready or not, we're going to have a meeting. Whether you're ready or not, we're going to have discussions. Whether you're really polished with parliamentary procedures or not, you're going to run a meeting. So I think, you know, even in those early years in high school and then as a state officer and leading those camps, the one great thing about FFA is they they push you uh, out front. It's not the ag teacher. It's not the uh, student teacher. Uh, and no one's coming to the rescue. So I think it gave me great confidence to move forward, to take action, to be decisive. And uh, whether I was ready or not, you know, here we go. So I think it uh, encourages to lead by example. Yes, I love that. I actually, as you're saying that, it reminded me of a time when I was supposed to lead a meeting and I was not ready to lead the meeting at all. And that really taught me probably the biggest lesson I had in um, my FFA career so far that you need to be ready. And it's just like you're out there by yourself and you're going to figure it out. So that really helped me for like my future um, roles in FFA and all of that. So how what was your path, what did your path look like between being an active FFA member and then now your career? Well, it took a couple of turns. I was probably the only member of the officer team, the state officer team that didn't go to the University of Minnesota or go into an ag program. I think one of our members went to uh, Crookston, but I think everybody else other than me went to uh, the St. Paul campus at the University of Minnesota. My first declared major in college was acting. I thought I wanted to be an actor. So uh, one of the things that happened was I was, you know, trying out for plays at Mankato State University. Now it's Minnesota State University, Mankato. And I was also taking speech classes because that's what I was doing outside of school. I was speaking at chapter banquets. And so I was taking speech classes. I was, uh, you know, taking some uh, acting classes. And then I was was cast in a couple of plays. And I realized that play practice and then the matinees and the shows were all at the time of the day or evening or weekends when you could be with family and friends and you couldn't be. And I thought that's not the career that I would want. That's not the lifestyle I would want. And so I kind of buried myself in speech, business and political science. And I started looking more into getting into business for myself so I could kind of set my own hours. But then what happened is after my junior year in college, I ended up uh, that there was a manufacturing company in my hometown that was for sale. And I left college after my junior year and bought a little manufacturing company. And then for the next seven years, I, that company grew to three companies in three states. And I used to take my staff to Dale Carnegie, Skill Path, Career Track, seminars and workshops and saw what a difference it made when someone from the outside would point out ways that we could be better, more effective and do things faster, more efficiently. And so when I decided to leave manufacturing, I went into the speaking business. So I went back to college, finished my undergraduate degree that summer, stayed one more year, picked up a master's degree that was blended with speech and business and started speaking for a living back in 1991. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So this is my 30th year giving speeches, seminars and workshops as a paid professional speaker and seminar leader. And I've delivered about 3,500 or so. 
presentations. And now that, you know, business has changed with the COVID pandemic. And now I'm doing much of that work virtually, similar to what we're doing today, except on about a dozen different platforms, whether it's Microsoft Teams or Zoom or any of the other virtual presentation platforms. So that's kind of the route I went. It was uh, heading a certain direction and recognizing that's not really what I would like to do. But the funny thing in the speaking business is it's kind of like acting in a way. I, I get to write my own lines. I, I have a, it's kind of a one act play in a way. I've got 45 minutes or maybe a couple of hours or a full day workshop. And it, and I, I still have my evenings for the most part and weekends available for my family. So in an odd sort of way, I changed horses, but I'm still riding in the same horse. And that is to, you know, be able to study and polish and present information. Wow, that is so cool. So you said you had, you've spoken a lot and you've been speaking for like 30 years now. What is your favorite speech or like topic to present on? <laughs> well, you know, I have to sit through every one of them. So my whole goal is to have fun and people actually accidentally learn quite a bit. But the, the two present, well, probably three presentations I deliver the most often, which really are the ones I enjoy presenting the most often are one is called STP, Stress, Time, and Procrastination Management. Uh, the other is uh, Embracing Change. So how do you lead an organization through change and adversity and uncertainty and get everybody through that in one piece? And then also Handling Difficult People, Dealing with People You Can't Stand, which <laughs> doesn't sound like it could be much fun, but we do have a lot of fun with that topic. Wow, that's so cool. So has there been any major challenges throughout um, your young adult life or even now in life that you've had to come overcome? Yeah, you know, when I was young, I really did enjoy participating in sports. And I r ran cross country in the fall I, uh, after I had uh, left playing football. And the reason I, I liked playing football, but what happened is I hit a tackling dummy wrong in ninth grade and uh, lost feeling in my legs. And then I had to go to uh, the hospital. They picked me up with an ambulance off the practice field and took me to the doctor. And then they did a lot of x-rays and they found that I had a, a, a number of oddities is the way I'll describe it. Back then, I think I used to describe it as birth defects, but I had the vertebrae in my lower back were malformed. They aren't uh, exactly like ice cubes stacked on each other. And I had this uh, bottom vertebrae that appeared to be continuing to move forward, uh, you know, and the anticipation was someday it would just kind of slide off and then I'd be wheelchair bound. So I, I left football and uh, I ran cross country one year because I wanted to be a letter winner. And I, I, and, and I did a letter in cross country. I lettered in wrestling. I lettered in track. And that was the end of my athletics because I couldn't have any more kind of high impact uh, sports. So that's where I kind of moved into other things. And I think that's why the, the 4-H and the FFA was such a, a great transition. I was doing plays in high school, you know, the King and I and, you know, South Pacific and our town. And, and, and I, you know, I was able to be a letter winner. I was involved in band and choir. And I, I don't know, it just gave me an opportunity when I was no longer in sports to explore all sorts of other things that I found just as much fulfillment or joy in doing and uh, gave me a broader group of friends. And, and I have a tremendous number of interests today as an adult. So I guess what it kind of taught me is you have to adjust when things aren't going quite the way you planned and modify some of your behavior. But if we can redirect 
our efforts, it seems like it builds a certain amount of resilience and that you can find joy in other pursuits. And I guess that was kind of the gift. Uh, you know, I don't uh, move well these days. You know, my exercise program is walking and isometrics. I've adapted that I have, a, I have a hot tub for the last 30 years that I get in every morning to loosen up because about the only thing that moves freely on my body are my eyeballs. And then I have a nutritional supplement that seems to help that I take every morning. I have an inversion table. Uh, what do they call it? Kind of a zero gravity thing where you hang by your ankles. I, I have that in my office that I, I get on, you know, throughout the day a number of times. I eat ibuprofen like milk duds. I, but, you know, I've been able to figure out kind of a combination of physical activity, good nutrition, and I guess uh, kind of a positive outlook that, uh, you know, I'm not worried about it or concerned about my lower back. I mean, I, I have constant pain, but the movement of that vertebrae at the bottom of my spine has stopped. And uh, I think it's because I've, you know, really kind of given up that high impact kind of activity and I'm taking better care of myself. But I do notice this, if I put on five pounds, the pain I feel in my back kind of goes up about 50%. So one of the things that's kind of forced me to do is take pretty good care of myself. So I guess that's kind of an odd benefit that came from it too. So I think if we're always looking for something positive out of the adversity, we'll find it. But I think some people, you know, are too past oriented and they never want to give up what they wanted to do and instead of modifying what they can do and enjoying it just as much. Wow, that's really a great outlook to um, have, like be put in um, in a situation like that. Was there like a time like when you were younger in high school when you like found out and you like needed to kind of change your focus and like your activity? Was there a turning point or a struggle through that? Can you describe that at all? Oh, sure. You know, this is 40 years ago, maybe even longer than that. Would it be 45 years ago? You know, uh, as far as uh, information, you know, as far as uh, medical uh, improvements or technology, you know, at first I kind of dealt with a football coach thinking I just didn't want to play football anymore, that, you know, that I wasn't uh, masculine enough or I didn't have the grit and and I did the, you know, I did the three sports so I could letter and I kind of struggled with this issue, you know, of my other, you know, teammates thinking I was kind of a quitter, you know, and nobody really knows when you have internal pain, you know, what it feels like and what it, uh, but when it's also kind of the psychological part of it where people are questioning why you're doing what you're doing. So I just kind of pushed through that and uh, did as well as I could in the other activities so that people knew that I was still motivated. It wasn't the motivation. It wasn't the desire. It wasn't the drive. It was just simply physically I was not able to and shouldn't be doing those activities. So, I, I, I you know, when I was in high school in the plays, I had the district best, best actor award. I was in the speech team. I, you know, gone to state a couple of times. I I, I competed just as competitively in everything else, uh, you know, just not the sports anymore because I, I just couldn't take the risk. So I think part of that, not fully understanding somebody else's physical pain and risk, you know, kind of haunted me for a couple of seasons, I think, in, in high school that there was, you know, for me, a question of whether I was, you know, really giving up or I should be stubborn and stick with it or should I just redirect my efforts? So I, I chose to redirect my efforts and, you know, I, I still uh, was homecoming king. I still was uh, honored as outstanding senior boy. I mean, I, I, I did everything else 
as well as I could. So it, I think it did replace, you know, with my um, athletic friends, you know, that loss. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's boded well for you um, in your future and like being a motivational speaker and what you do every day today. Now, um, I think that change probably ended up helping you. Yeah, I think you can't you can't fake it. You know, when I give presentations on leadership and management, you know, I've watched people in leadership positions from when I was three years old at my first 4-H club where young kids were leading meetings and doing parliamentary procedures and delivering you know, uh, demonstration speeches and then an FFA. And uh, then I was, you know, a business owner and had, you know, 40 employees and millions of dollars of debt. And so I've, I've lived it. And I think you got to live it before people will recognize the authenticity of it and the genuine support that you can give people or hope that you can give people. So I think it's something that you have to have experienced. Otherwise, it just seems like it's book smart and that's a little thin. I mean, anybody can read a book. Most people won't, but anybody could. But real life experience is hard to replace. So I think if a person can cast a wide net to capture every experience you possibly can with the time that you're given and just keep really good track of the people who you really enjoyed spending time with, I think that, that would be a winning, a winning, uh, winning strategy or approach to life. Wow. So, so good. So what does your day-to-day -day life look like being a motivational speaker and seminar leader? Well, like today, I'm, I'm putting the final touches on a presentation I'll be delivering later on this afternoon for an hour. It's a client that provides services to adults with disabilities. And so I had a phone call with them a couple of days ago talking about some of the issues and the big changes that affected their business model with the COVID pandemic. Uh, yesterday, I was working with an IT company for two hours. That was a presentation on embracing change and managing the stressors caused by the pandemic. The thing that's probably changed the most in the last eight months is, you know, typically I'll have about 70 events that are within driving distance around the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, or maybe out to Sioux Falls or Des Moines, or maybe over to Madison or the Brainerd Lakes area where the resorts and conventions are held outside of town. And then about 30 of my events would be someplace where I needed to fly to, you know, somewhere, whether it's Florida or the East Coast or the West Coast or somewhere in between. But then in the last eight months, because of the pandemic, a lot of those events were switched to virtual events rather than in-personal events. And so I had to learn a lot of new technologies and a lot of new platforms, about a dozen or so of how I could still provide the same message. So I was just looking at my electronic calendar that speakers bureaus around the country can see what I'm up to and whether I'm available on a certain date. And, and I still had more than 130 presentations this year. What was weird about it was because I'm not traveling, I have more blocks of time to book more events. Now, people don't have as big of budgets, but I'm booking more events with smaller budgets. So my numbers, you know, as far as the gross revenue, is still the same, but it's a completely different business model than I had eight months ago. And I'm not sure if I enjoy this one as much as the other one. I kind of miss the dynamics of face-to-face -face interactions and being able to really play off of the audience and to you know share that energy or receive it. And it's pretty tough to do through a computer screen or some sort of a virtual presentation platform, but it seems to be working well. I, I, I still enjoy it just as much as far as trying to figure out how do I share the most valuable information in the time that I'm allowed and do it in a lighthearted, 
fun and informative way. So uh, the challenge is still there. It's just now there's more kind of a gap in the richness of the communication because we can't see each other very well. That's so cool that you've been able to like stay busy with um, the online platform. But yes, I do definitely miss also um, seeing people in person and playing off of like others' energies and really knowing like what's going on um, in their atmosphere. So what has been like the most influential learning experience throughout your career? I guess one of the things I recognized probably 25 years ago is most people don't take the time to read. There was a little study that claimed less than 25, what was it, less, let's say, what was it, 60, about two thirds of the adults at that time employed in this country had not read another book in its entirety since high school. And this was before the internet, you know, and information being available, you know, off your smartphone or, or your iPad or, you know, out of your computer. This was, you know, books that you had to go to a bookstore and buy and, that study also said less than 25% of adults had even been in a bookstore or in a library in the last five years. So I realized that very few people truly continue their education after, after high school. So I kind of came up with the idea that in a funny sort of way, I get paid to read and then apply that information and see what works and what doesn't work and then share that that information with people so they can have confidence if they do that, say that, this will be the outcome that they receive. So, you know, I, I feel kind of you know, like that uh, I have a good library. I have a couple of thousand books in my personal library here in my home office. Uh, it's a working library. I, I'm, I'm constantly reading and adding new material. So I, I guess the, the thing that I, I learned is that what I speak on actually enhances my own business. So I only speak on things I enjoy, but the information that I'm experimenting with and applying enhances, I guess, the spontaneity or continues my interest in my own enterprise. And so I don't get caught in a rut or doesn't seem to be boring any longer. I'm continuing, you know, to my education and trying to find new ways to, you know, adapt and adjust to whatever's going on in the economy. I love that. I know my FFA advisor always says, um, if if you haven't learned something new today, you wasted a day. So he <laughs> says he always wants to learn at least one thing new each day so that he doesn't waste a day of his life. Um, so that just kind of plays into it, that reading, I know you learn a lot from um, different books and ideas that authors put out there. And, you know, I think what happens over time, it gets it's more and more difficult to continue to study and read about things that you already believe you know quite a bit about. And I'm sharing that because I was in a, a reading club in a way. It was through the sales and marketing executives for five years. And we would meet the last Friday of every month. But the goal was you would read, and everybody read the same book, a different leadership book every month. And then you would discuss how would you apply this to your own business? How would you help your clients or customers apply this information in their organization, whether it's a nonprofit or a you know private business. And so we read 50 books, five zero, 50 books in those four years on leadership, just leadership. And you know, sometimes you would think, oh, I've read you know this all before, but then you would find in a book four pages, maybe five pages, that was worth all that time in reading that entire book. So not everything is in every book is what I find. And, you know, 
Uh, my mentor in the speaking business used to tell me before you ever get in front of an audience on a topic, you read at least 20 books on that topic, but not, not the entire book cover to cover. What he always suggested is you'd buy 20 books on what you're going to speak on. You open up the table of contents. You take a look at what concepts, what boilerplate information is in every one of those books that every expert agrees. You got to talk about this. Otherwise, you don't understand what this is. And then you read every one of those chapters that are the same in every one of those books. And then whatever books you really enjoyed reading, read those cover to cover because it probably is in alignment with your values, your beliefs, your attitude, your approach, your perspective. And it will trigger memories of things that happened in your life that, ah, I wish I would have known then, but I just learned now because this is the way I could approach it. So then you could have real world experience, real life experience that you've had in the past that you can use as your own case study to share with your audience. You say, you know, this is what I used to do. Then I learned this. If I could go back in time, this is what I would do today. And it, it, it makes your stories come to life because they're your story. It's your experience. It's what happened to you and you blew it. It also is what you changed and it got better. So that was, that was a great experience was to read 50 books on the same subject over those four years. But I'll tell you what, if I get up in front of an audience to talk about leadership, we could talk about that for the next 30 days. <laughs> so it does, <laughs> it does give you more breadth than depth on a topic, that's for sure. <laughs> that's awesome. I can't even imagine um, reading that many books on the same topic, but I should probably try it sometime and see how it um, goes for me. <laughs> so in your opinion, what is the most important thing to focus on as an FFA member looking um, to like finish our FFA careers? I think anytime there's an opportunity to volunteer or to be part of a new committee or to be part of a new, um, I don't know, community in, uh, involvement uh, program. Or I just think we, it's great to be involved in what is currently happening in the local FFA chapter with your ag teacher and your, and your fellow members. I, I think one of the things that I recognize is our community used to have a summer event. It was railroad days. And because of FFA, because of 4-H, and because I was on the student council, I also got on that committee that was a city-wide committee. And I was the only student there, the only kid that showed up. But I, I, I cast a wider net. Now, what's kind of interesting is years later when I came back and I owned a manufacturing company in that town, at 21, I was a Rotary member. So all of those folks that I knew, you know, five to eight years before that, when I used to go to this you know, railroad days committee meetings uh, were there that were the business owners and the leaders of the community and, you know, city government and city councils. And I already had a relationship with all of them. I, they already had a, I already had a track record with them. So I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's great to be as involved as you possibly can be in all the activities and all the supervised occupational experience programs that are offered through FFA but to also cast that net a little bit wider and look outside to see what other type of organizations kind of overlap or also provide similar but different activities and, and opportunities and, and get involved in those. And I think just be a, a larger community asset than just the local FFA chapter member. 
Awesome. I love that. So what is one piece of piece of advice that you would leave with us um, as we move forward in searching in searching for our future colleges and careers? Well, I think what's important is to identify what you want your life to look like day in, day out, as far as how what kind of interactions you want with people, what kind of industry do you want to be part of? Because your title or your role or your position will probably change over time. But if you love that industry, if you really appreciate what it provides, whether it's, you know, for the country or for your community or, or your self-esteem in a way or helping others. But I, I think really identifying the type of industry you want to be in, what you believe you want to do and not go after the title or the position, because I think once you've experienced that industry and have had some time working in it, you'll find a different track you may want to take and be willing to take that track, to, willing to take those risks. I, you know, I've over the years, I've, I've owned manufacturing companies. I've been a real estate investor. I buy what are called distressed properties, more than 40 of them over the last 30 years. If you drove by it and said, yuck, you know, I'm probably interested in buying it. Then I, 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 I would try to reposition it to, to make it into something that people would like to get rid of that eyesore, to, to recreate that property into something that people drive by and say, wow, that looks nice. And so I, I, I love that challenge of that. And I love the freedom of real estate. It doesn't care who owns it. Uh, the timeline is, you know, you have quite a bit of control of how involved you are going to be. And I think if we can find the right industries that provide us with that right mix of independence and autonomy, but also connections with other people that we enjoy and want to, you know, share our life with is, is critical. The rest of that stuff, it'll find its, its own way. And, you know, it's kind of fate in a way. But I think anchoring yourself into an industry and seeing what comes out of it and being willing to volunteer anytime there's an opportunity would be a great way to spend the first 10 years outside of FFA and, and to really kind of ex really identify the way you want to live the rest of your life. Awesome. I think that was definitely directed towards me because I am currently a freshman um, in college and just kind of trying to figure out what I actually want to do and what I'm interested in. And um, I'm just looking forward to like figuring out what it is that um, I really want to do and what um, my day-to-day -day life kind of wants to look like and what connections I um, really like. So to finish us off, um, since the podcast is called I Believe, what do you believe in today? Well, I used to believe that studying and reading and kind of book smart was really extremely valuable. I still think it is, but I believe now that it needs to be balanced with emotional intelligence, which is a topic that I started speaking on a couple of years ago. And the more I study it, the more I realize it's a very valuable skill set. Now, I just saw on the bachelorette, you know, someone making fun of emotional intelligence. But, you know, self-awareness is critical and seeking feedback by, from people we know and trust to really get an idea about ourselves. So we, we really know what we have for skills and talents and abilities. And then self-regulation to be able to really understand our emotions so we can respond appropriately, whether it's when we're under stress or when things aren't going the way we hoped, but to really you know, not cause catastrophic damage in our relationships by losing our cool. And then I think our motivation, understanding what drives us and is important to us and that we'd like to get up 
in the morning and get to it and take action is important. And, and then to develop the, I think the hardest soft skill there is, which is empathy that we recognize facial expressions and tone of voice and the emotions of others and the impact we can have on that positive or negative and to really be a person that's present to be empathetic and sympathetic as needed. And I think if we really focus on those four components, you know, social skill will create itself and we'll be able to walk into nearly any sort of social situation and, and be effective and to be comfortable. And I think that's critical because I've seen so many people that seem to be somewhat stunted in their ability to be part of different groups or different friends or different communities. And I think they miss out on so many fulfilling opportunities. So I, I think there's got to be a balance, book smart, but also emotional intelligence and really seeing the impact you have in others' relationships with you. Awesome. I love that. And I think I've been kind of focusing on that as well, just going to college and finding new um, a new friend group and then also being in a lot more challenging classes. Um, that really um, is something that's really good to believe in. So, Mr. Walchlin, thank you for taking the time to join me on the I Believe podcast. I am so glad I was able to hear from your insight, and I know others will feel the same. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you very much for inviting me. Take care. Thank you for listening today. I believe that together we can make a difference in our world. Go out with passion, dedication, and a willingness to do everything you can to help our world.